All right, so St. Clement of Rome uh, writes 1 Clement 96 AD. He's a leader, we know that, of the church uh, in Rome, perhaps second or third bishop of Rome, but there's not a lot of clear evidence of uh, regarding that, um, whether he was considered a bishop or a, a presbyter or a leading presbyter, which really may have been the same as the bishop. Uh, in those days, because remember, until the apostles are all dead, the threefold order of ministry was really apostle, bishop, priests, and deacons. Okay, um, so um, but anyway, definitely a leader in the Church of Rome, probably a, a, what we would consider a bishop. Um, he's mentioned in the New Testament in Philippians chapter four, verse three. Philippians chapter four, verse three. Uh, First Clement is associated with the canon of the New Testament. Um, As I said, I believe it is true that in some of the Oriental Orthodox Church, his writings are still considered to be canonical. Um, Some people will argue, well, you know, why read First Clement since, you know, he was kicked out of the canon? And and I think that's a very bad view uh, of or approach to look at it. Because he wasn't kicked out of the canon because, you know, his writings were considered to be heretical in any way, but simply because he he was not one of the apostles, nor writing in particular in their name. He was writing as a a bishop uh, of the church and writing to the church in Corinth uh, to help them with some problems that had come their way. Yes. There are no stupid questions. Oh, Go ahead. So, so was why it? That's such a stupid question. Um, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> no, Paul is considered one of the apostles. The apostle Paul. Okay. Yep, the apostle Paul. Um, Paul is considered. And he's received as that in the in the early church and uh, and. Um, you know, is believed to um, have been given that um, authority by the risen Christ himself. Um, and so, and he's received as such. In fact, in a lot of early art, Matthias is not the thirteen, the 12th apostle in the picture. It's Paul, that is, and which is interesting. So not a stupid question. A little ignorant, but not stupid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Okay, um, so associated with the with the new canon, I think, wow, you know how how cool is that? It was so highly regarded uh, as a writing in the very early church that it was even considered to be the word of God um, by parts of the church, um, and so definitely worth our reading uh, and a time. Uh, he quotes from the Apocrypha without distinction from the other books of the Old Testament. This is very common in the first three centuries. Part of my argument of why I accept the Apocrypha, uh, what I call deuterocanonical, extra canon. Um, But anyway, he quotes from the Apocrypha without distinction from the rest of the Old Testament, um, as does uh, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, by the way. And um, this was very common in the first three centuries. Uh, First Clement is written in opposition to schism in the church of Corinth, which he describes as, quote, unholy. Schism is unholy. 
stresses ecclesiastical, that is church order, as from the apostles. So, you know, this idea people say, oh, well, you know, the whole idea of, you know, the order that emerged in the apostolic age of bishop, priest, and deacon, you you know, uh, this is just what the church went with at that time, and we can change it in our day if we wanted to. That's, you know, a secondary matter. Well, you know, I would say that it's grounded in Scripture, and it is apostolic in its origin, and he bears witness to that. And he says, in fact, what we have received comes from the apostles who received it from Christ, and he was sent by God. Great emphasis is put on obedience versus disobedience. Obedience versus disobedience. I mean, really, first climate's very necessary in our own day, I think, within the the life of, of the church. Um, a lot of our issues come from uh, disobedience, and not always in t- uh, intentional disobedience either. Just kind of our concept in this day that, you know, we have a right to kind of decide what we think is right and what's wrong and who are you, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. Obedience versus disobedience, order versus disorder. Speaks of it uh, as a sickness and says that repentance is the answer. Repentance. Because disobedience and uh, schism, which is unholy, and disorder comes from pride. Repentance brings about humility. Uh, in his writings, there's, there's not a clear distinction made between bishops and presbyters. This distinction solidifies in the very early 2nd century, so just a couple of years later, following the death of the apostles. Okay? So the threefold order of ministry in the apostolic age was apostles, bishop-priests, the bishop being the leading priest, and deacons. With the death of the apostles, right around the time Clement is writing, bishops move into the place of the apostles because the apostles are dead, and then priests remain where they are in the second place. And and when I say second place, I don't, you know, it's uh, hierarchy doesn't necessarily deem inequality. And then deacons in the third place. He mentions that bishops and presbyters offer the gifts of the Eucharist. Feast day, November 23rd. Anything about St. Clement? Letters of of St. Ignatius of Antioch. He was the second, according to some of the early church fathers, or the third, according to others, bishop of Antioch in succession from St. Peter himself. I've always wondered why in, in, when Rome makes the claim that the bishop of Rome as a direct successor to Peter 
carries special charisms, okay, if that were true, and that's a big if, because it's not based on anything biblical, okay, if that were true, why would it not apply to the bishops in Antioch who, who claim to be in the succession of Peter in particular? Okay. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, while you hear a lot in the news about Anglicans who have gone to Rome, um, you don't hear as much in the news about Roman Catholics who have become Anglican, by the way. There's a couple of bishops down in South America right now that are coming into Anglicanism. You don't hear anything about it. But the, uh, a much bigger movement was uh, what's called the Western Rite Orthodox Church under the uh, the Antiochian Orthodox, and what it, it's called the Rite of Saint Tikhon, and it essentially, if you were to go to one of their churches somewhere in North America, there's about ten thousand communicants uh, in the Western Rite Orthodox Church under Antioch. If you were to go into their church, you would almost find no difference between what they do and what we'll do tomorrow at nine a.m. So almost almost none. Creed without the filioque, for example. Um, but it's basically the rite of St. Tikhon was, now we're getting off the topic just for a second, but Charles Grafton was a missionary bishop um, up in, uh, settled in uh, uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, anywhere, anyway. And he actually had very good dialogue with then Tikhon, who later became the patriarch of Moscow and St. Tikhon, had a very good relationship with him um, uh, uh, in the uh, beginning of the 20th century or late 19th century. And Tikhon discovered through Grafton that Anglicanism was basically a non-papal form of Catholicism and was moving towards the idea that really um, there were still faithful uh, Orthodox Christians in the West and they're Anglicans. Okay, now Charles Grafton was a high churchman, so he failed to mention too much about the low churchman. So, uh, so, but so Tikhon uh, said, you know, hey, this is great, and he took the Book of Common Prayer back with him to Russia. They rushed through it. No kidding, the, to Russia, and they went through it and 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 basically did the rite of Saint Tikhon, as it later became known, which is the Book of Common Prayer with just a few tweaks to bring it, in their opinion, fully into um, uh, the, uh, uh, what would be considered legitimate for the Orthodox. So like the filioque had to be removed from the creed. You, you know, very little, very few tweaks um, uh, at all. Essentially what we do. Um, and um, you can get it, by the way, if you ever wanted to order it. It's called the St. Andrew's Service Book and is put out by the Antiochian Orthodox Archdiocese in America, the St. Andrew's Service Book, and you just look up the Rite of St. Tikhon uh, in that, and uh, there it is. T-I-K-O-N. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Ignatius, Bishop of Antioch, uh, in succession from St. Peter the Apostle. Okay. 
wrote his letters on his way to be martyred in Rome. So the seven authentic letters of, uh, of Ignatius are written when he's on his way. So he's on his way to be killed, and he's basically saying, this is what I want to communicate um, to, to the church before my death. Yes, he did, and, and he basically told them that no matter if he wimped out in the end and was begging for mercy not to save him because he wanted to die for Christ. And, you know, so that if, he, and, and he went on to say that he may be ground by the teeth of lions and, be, and then his body scattered in the fields to be manure, basically, for um, wheat that could then grow and be harvested by the church and used for the Eucharist so that even in death his body could bring honor and glory to God. Wow, man. And we're like, oh, if I take a stand against the Episcopal Church, I'll lose my pension. Yeah, you know? I'm not going to be ground. So anyway, I will, I will someday. All right. Um, yeah. I want to be a flay of fish. But anyway, um, uh, I'm sorry. So um, on his way to be martyred, Guarded by ten Roman soldiers. He was received by St. Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, en route to Rome. And we, of course, we, we, we read about Polycarp as well, and we read a letter from Polycarp. The letters were highly regarded in the ancient church, though never recognized as canonical, because he's writing in his own name and as a bishop of the church but they were highly regarded in the early church. Strong emphasis on the, order, on the office of bishop, the episcopacy, as the symbol of church unity. Strong emphasis on the office of bishop. You know, if you can remember, I have these notes on computer. I can send these to you, all these notes to publish too. And I was going to do that last time with something and never did. If you can figure out what that was and let me know, I can send those too. Strong emphasis on the office of bishop. In fact, there's a, a line that I like that reminds me of Bishop Harvey. And it says, the longer the bishop is silent, the more you should be afraid. <laughs> And, and, and I love that because there's been about five times in the uh, almost two decades that I've known Bishop Harvey where I've made a statement and he just sat there looking at me. <laughs> Didn't say anything. My, uh, my favorite story, though, is how Sarah understood, and she was only about four, maybe three or four, but she understood hierarchy within the church. Um, she went... Uh, to uh, Christine and said, um, Mommy, I want some more candy because she couldn't reach it. She had chocolate all over her mouth. Christine said, No, honey, you've had enough candy. You can't have any more chocolate. I'm going to Daddy. So she comes to me, Daddy, I want some more chocolate. And I was like, Oh, that face, I want to say yes, but I, she'll hear me. <laughs> so all men live in fear. So, um, so I said, Honey, you've heard your mother. I'm going to the bishop, she said. <laughs> and she went over to the bishop Harvey and said, Bishop, I want some chocolate. And he said, my dear, you can have some chocolate. And so she got her chocolate and that was that. So 
Now that's what I call understanding hierarchy and church order. All right. Um, yeah. um, the threefold office of ministry, bishop, priest, and deacon, is clearly established. And what's amazing is that we're, we're talking just 11 years after Clement. Okay? So Clement, the apostles are, are, are still alive, right? Or at least some, I mean, at least a small, small handful. And so there still is apostle, bishop, priest, deacon. But by 107, okay, the bishops are really emerging into that place of the office of bishop. And Ignatius clearly establishes the threefold office of ministry that is grounded in scripture and the, the teaching of the apostles to be bishops, priests, and deacons. In fact, there was a movement uh, probably a couple decades ago now of some, um, um, uh, what, what's that uh, group that Father Chris belongs to to be a chaplain? Crusaders? Campus Crusade, Campus Crusade for Christ. And a bunch of ministers and other evangelical ministers who um, started reading the early church, and, they, and you know, they said, you know, we, we want to be more connected to the early church. And so they decided that they would start getting together and do a study on Scripture and the earliest church fathers only. And, uh, and they got a hold of Clement, and they got a hold of Ignatius and Polycarp, and uh, the Didache, and Justin, and I think they went as far as Irenaeus in uh, 200. And they read all these, and they said, oh boy, Houston, we've got a problem. Um, we're, we're, we're Catholic, and uh, so was the Apostolic Church, not Roman Catholic, but Catholic. And they started a journey um, and uh, ended up in the uh, Eastern Orthodox Church. This whole group, they brought in like 2,000 people one day, into, uh, led by Peter Gilquist. Yeah. Um, I heard Peter Gilquist, Father Peter, uh, speak years ago, and a big, tall man, and he said in the middle of his talk, Is there a Father Michael McKinnon here? God is calling you to Holy Mother Church. I said, How do you know me? Expecting that he would say, well, I saw you under the bush tree or whatever, the fig tree. When I but anyway, the, the Orthodox priest who was trying to get me to come into Orthodoxy told him. And that, that's how it... So anyway, but it flipped me out there for a second. Um, um, so the threefold office of ministry, bishop, priest, and deacon. One of the reasons I'm Anglican uh, and not Eastern Orthodox is that, well, there's several reasons, but I don't want to get off on that right now. But one of them is that for me, Anglicanism um, is, where it's Orthodox with a small o, more clearly the biblical Catholic Church, where we're clearer on the authority, I believe, in the primacy of Scripture. And I'm a Catholic, but I'm a Bible Catholic. That's what a patristic Catholic is. But secondly, uh, also because I believe that Orthodox with a small o, Anglicanism, is the Orthodox Church in the West with a big O. Um, and um, so uh, I don't have to become Eastern Orthodox. I'm, I'm already the 
belong to the patristic church as it's known today because I'm, um, I'm Anglican. Well, he died in 107, and he wrote these letters in 107 A.D., so before that, obviously. They tended not to um, consecrate people bishops once they were dead. Yeah. yeah. That's probably the only time I'd get bishop. I'd have to be dead, I think. Okay. Um, but they were called, only called saints after they died, right? They were not called saints before they died. Well, no, that's not true. Paul refers to the living as saints. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, order versus disorder in the church, just very much like First Clement. Strongly desired through martyrdom to share in the sufferings of Christ. I mean, some scholars have actually criticized him that he was just a little too happy to be going to his death. But he just felt so blessed that he would be counted as worthy to die for the gospel. And I think it sounds strange to some of these scholars because that, that thought is just so alien to us today. Strong emphasis on the divinity and humanity of Jesus Christ. He refers to him as our God, Jesus Christ. Very strong emphasis on the Eucharist as the medicine of immortality. In fact, it, it, uh, if I could do a class just on, on his letters, I, I would be excited about it because there's just so much. It's repetitive, but there's so much good stuff there to talk about. The Didache, uh, meaning the teaching of the Twelve, the, the latest date for it is 120. Some think it was even as early as the first century. Um, but um, I usually tend to give things the latest date possible so that people don't accuse me of trying to make it closer to, you, you know, Jesus in, in age. Um, so 120 is the latest date for the Didache. Not written by the 12 apostles, but received as accurately articulating the early Christian and apostolic faith. Deals a lot with morals in early Christian church practice probably written in Syria. I don't have it written here, but for some reason I thought it was written in Egypt. But so anyway, that area, they're pretty close. Mentions baptism, fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays, prayer, the Eucharist, bishops and deacons. As I said, it also deals with all the issues that are still present um, regarding uh, how baptism should be done. It says, look, yeah, immerse the people. That should be the norm. If you can't immerse them, then pour water over their heads. If you don't have a lot of water, use a little water. I mean, you know, it answers it all. Yeah, yeah, use running water. And, you know, and that was true because in those areas that was much easier to have, like in a river. But as the as uh, evangelistic efforts moved northward, 
that became more and more difficult to baptize people, even in even in the summertime. Because I mean, I remember being up on the coast of Labrador, and the uh, RCMP officer came in and was cursing. And I said, "What's wrong?" And he said, "I dropped my anchor, uh, um, you know, and it's at the bottom of the bay, you know, the harbor." And I said, "Oh boy, how far down?" He said, oh, "About seven feet." So I said, "Why don't you go get it?" And he goes, you go get it. Meaning, it, what I found out, what he meant was, it, it's so cold, even in the summer, you're not going to go in those waters. Yeah. Um, and uh, so anyway, uh, you know, it, so baptisms moved inward, and then once in, in defiance, and then once the known world was converted, the only people to baptize were children, so fonts got smaller and smaller and smaller, and that's where the indoor small fonts come from. But it's all there in the Didache. Um, St. Polycarp lived probably around 69 AD, so about 30-something years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Died around 155 AD. He was a disciple of the Apostle John. He lived off of crackers. Polly, want a cracker? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, sorry. How bad is that? You thought I was bad. Um, lived off crackers. I saw everyone going. Yeah, yeah, I know. Oh my! All right, so um, a disciple, particularly of John. So he received the faith from John. St. Ignatius writes a letter to Polycarp in 107 AD. I do want to stress also that Polycarp uh, gives us a wonderful ecclesiology of the church in that he, he writes to the bishop of each church and, and will say how basically that in writing to the bishop, he's writing to that whole local church. Or in receiving the bishop, he received all of them. And yeah, Ignatius, I'm sorry, wrote, wrote that. And so that, you know, gives us that ecclesiology of, of really that the smallest unit of the church is not the congregation. It's the diocese. Okay. Um, a single letter of Polycarp survives, a letter to the Philippians often critiqued for not having original theology. Um, but I praise him for that because, you know, he, he was a disciple of the Apostle John. He was familiar with some of the, the writings of the fathers before him. And so he didn't feel it was his job to come up with something new and fanciful, but rather to communicate the faith that he had received to his people. Okay. And to those whom he was writing. Quotes 1 John, and the reason that's interesting is because 1 John was for a time questionable as far as the canon, but he quotes 1 John. 
He's really a link between the apostolic age and the sub-apostolic age. The sub-apostolic age is the age right after the apostolic age. Okay. And he's really a link there for us. So is Ignatius, really. Lived for 86 years. In fact, when he um, refuses to save his life uh, by not renouncing Christ, um, you know, he says something to the extent of, you know, for 86 years uh, I've served him faithfully and my king's never done anything wrong to me. Why would I, you know, renounce him now? And uh, many scholars think that, you know, that's very clear that he was probably, he was an old man, probably about 86, so he's basically was brought up in a Christian home and it's some insight possibly to, you know, infant baptism even in the apostolic age. The record of his martyrdom survives, which I hope you also read. Very moving piece. Okay, now we're going to talk about um, some of the ages of the church related to the apostolic age, which will give us insight to our next class. All right, so Christ is approximately 1 A.D. to 33 A.D. The Apostolic Age is 33 A.D. to about 110 A.D. Within the Apostolic Age is the New Testament era, which is 53 A.D. to 96 A.D. Everyone with me? Okay. Then um, the the sub-apostolic age is from 110 A.D. to 325 A.D. with the calling of the First Ecumenical Council, Nicaea. It's called the Sub-Apostolic Age because the Apostolic Age is, is considered the norm, and so this is less than, even though it, is, it, it follows it. Does that make sense? It's also called the Post-Apostolic Age, a little easier to understand. It's also known as the Age of the Martyrs because many people uh, were martyred for the faith in that age. Until what? What brought about the final end in that period of the Age of the Martyrs? The conversion of Constantine? Yeah. Yep, around 312. And the, what was it? The Edict of Milan? Uh, we'll get to it next month. Age of the Martyrs, post-apostolic age, sub-apostolic age, 110-ish to 325. During this time, two schools of Christology emerge. Christology is the theology of the person of Christ. You have the Alexandrian school which emphasized the divinity of Christ, thus the irony of Arius coming from that area because he emphasized the, the creaturehood or creatureness of, of Christ. But the, the, Christ, the Christological school in Alexandria was emphasized the divinity of Christ. And the Antiochian School of Christology, which emphasized the what? 
Yeah, the, well, the humanity, right? The humanity of Christ. It's in this age, the sub-apostolic age, that we have recorded the first, first martyr or the proto-martyr in Britain, St. Alban, who died in 203 A.D., Not well for the church, not for Britain. Yeah. Um. Was that last one you mentioned? Saint Alban, two o three. Um, now, and this is important for next time, from 96 A.D. to 787 A.D. is sometimes called the Age of the Fathers. That's because in 96 A.D. we have the earliest, uh, Clement, and in 787 we have the last of the ecumenical councils which, um, which brought to fruition the writings of St. John of Damascus, on whose feast day I was priested, the great defender of icons, who also uh, uh, explained why the priest faces east and denounced the filioque. Just all around, a heck of a great guy. But that's called the Age of the Fathers, 96 A.D. to 787 A.D. I always wanted to serve in a church where there was two stained glass of Clement and then right next to him, uh, John of Damascus, you know, kind of to represent that. Within the Age of the Fathers, you have um, different sets from 96 A.D., to about 110, 120 A.D., you have the what fathers? Apostolic fathers. From 120-ish A.D. to 325, you have the pre-Nicene fathers. 110-ish to 325, you have the pre-Nicene fathers, also known as the anti-Nicene fathers. Not that they were against the Council of Nicaea, but anti meaning they came before. From 325 to 787, you have the post Nicene fathers. From 325 to 787 also known as the Fathers of the Seven Ecumenical Councils because Nicaea I was in 325 and the last great ecumenical council, Nicaea II, was in 787. We're going to end early today, uh, folks, because I lent my my book um, to one of you um, 
last time so that you could read it and has all my notes in it and it didn't get returned to me. So uh, um, I do think we're going to end early today. Um, but basically it was just to open up particular passages from Clement and Ignatius and the Didache and Polycarp. Uh, and so if you've read those, uh, it, it would just be rehashing that. Um, the age of the councils, um, I'm just going to go through this quickly. Don't worry about writing it down. Praveen will send this to you anyway. But, um, and we're going to get into this a lot next time. But the seven ecumenical councils, 325 is the first, 787 is the last. Nicaea 325 basically sums up that Jesus is of one substance with the Father. They dealt with the heresy of Arianism, which denied the full divinity of Jesus and said that he was a creature greater to all the rest of creation, but inferior to God. Very similar, by the way, to what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. The second great ecumenical council, does anyone know? Constantinople in 381. And it's, it clarified the full divinity of the Holy Spirit. That's why you get some people who will say, well, the Trinity didn't really develop until 381 as a doctrine of the church. That's not true. The church gave definition to the doctrine of the Trinity because there were those who were denying the divinity of the Spirit and, and, and previously denying the full divinity of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus as God. I mean... Most believe he was incarnate in some sense, but not Emmanuel incarnate. The third ecumenical council was Ephesus in 431. And it proclaimed Mary as Theotokos, meaning the God-bearer. Or uh, often, I think, somewhat sloppily translated in the West as the mother of God. This is not a Marian statement, it's a Christological statement. It's not so much about Mary, it's about the fact that God truly entered the world in the incarnate Christ through Mary. That she bore the second person of the Trinity uh, 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 in his incarnation. The fourth ecumenical council Chalcedon or Chalcedon in 451 AD, proclaiming that Jesus Christ is one person with two perfect natures, fully God and fully human apart from sin. The two natures neither being confused to the point where you lose their distinction nor divided to the point where you lose the oneness of the person. We're, we're going to go into all of this more so next time. And when you read uh, Callistos Ware's book, um, The Orthodox Church, you'll get all of this. Constantinople II is the uh, fifth in 553 AD. And essentially, it um, reaffirmed the... Um, the third and fourth ecumenical councils. The sixth council, Constantinople III, was in 680 AD. And um, it stated that Jesus Christ has two wills, 
So he's one person with two natures and two wills, a divine will and a human will. And then the last or the seventh ecumenical council, Nicaea 2 and 787, images of Christ and the saints are sacred and are to be venerated in the churches. Nicaea. Nicaea. It always makes it easy because Nicaea is the is is the bookmarks. I'm not the bookmarks. The bookends. Yeah, the bookends of the councils, and then Constantinople is three of them, and they're the last. So in, it's number two, and then five and six. So they're the inner bookends, and then if you then you just got to remember Ephesus and Chalcedon somehow, and then you got it. But yeah, so it goes Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus. Chalcedon or Chalcedon, Constantinople, Constantinople, Nicaea. The Great Schism or Schism, it depends if you use schisers in Seoul. The Great Schism of East and West was uh, for a simple way of looking at it was in 1054 A.D. What caused the Great Schism was papal claims to jurisdiction over the Eastern Church. This wasn't the first time. It actually started in the days of Photius, Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople, with Nicholas, uh, the Bishop of Rome, a few centuries earlier, but this really solidified it. Rome tried to claim jurisdiction over the whole Church, East and West. There was a papal bull of excommunication against Patriarch Michael of Constantinople. And then the Filioque dispute. Those are the three big issues. Wasn't that already settled in the first and second Ecumenical and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh. None of the ecumenical councils ever proclaimed the filioque. And the Roman, what would become the Roman church, had already accepted it. No, at first, um, when it started to spread, it began in uh, the fourth century in uh, Toledo, Spain, at a local council, and it was actually instituted um, for uh, for noble reasons. They were trying to affirm the full divinity of Jesus against the Arians uh, who had re-emerged in that area. And so they were trying to say everything that's true of the Father is true of the Son. Um, unfortunately, they went too far, and by trying to emphasize the full divinity of the Son, they distorted the distinction of the three persons of the Godhead um, and implied or, or explicitly, depending on your interpretation, um, uh, enacted a dual source of the Godhead. Um, and Rome, for centuries, was the mouthpiece uh, uh, against it, saying no one has the authority to unilaterally uh, uh, add anything to the creed of the universal church. Um, and, then, um, and then later on, uh, the, the popes began to embrace it. 
But to this day, actually, one of the earlier popes had the Nicene Creed chiseled into silver platelets in St. Peter's Basilica. Uh, and without the filioque, uh, the state, this is the creed of the church. You know? um, and that's still there to this day. I'm having them shipped to my house. Yeah, I mean, it really is an addition of, of the Western Church and even late of the Roman pontiff uh, to the creed. Um, I just want to share uh, a little bit about um, the ecclesiology in the early church that I was sharing with some in the staff meeting, and then we all take questions, and then we can conclude a bit uh, early today. Um, Oh, before I forget, if you want to read a few more fathers uh, beyond Jack Sparks, um, this is a very good book. It, it is written from a Roman Catholic perspective. Like I think First Clement is called the, a reading from Pope Clement, I mean, not even a term used in that age. But um, it's called Glimpses of the Church Fathers, uh, edited by Claire with an E at the end, Russell, Claire Russell. Um, really good book, gives you a lot of insight in, into things. Um, in fact, I'm going to read um, um, one thing that he wrote. But then it goes into uh, Clement, Ignatius, Barnabas, um, Cyril of Jerusalem on the Holy Spirit, Gregory of Nyssa, uh, Ambrose, Jerome, John Chrysostom, I mean... Buy this book and, and just read it. Read a little every day, but uh, very, very good. And then it, it, Glimpses of the Church Fathers. Glimpses of the Church Fathers. Claire Russell, two S's, two L's. Um, also by, um, it, it's, a, it's a very simple writing, and, but an excellent introduction to each father. A couple of things where I think the Pope has taken privileges to... Uh, uh, bend things a little bit to uphold later Roman Catholic dogma, but not too bad. Uh, um, uh, but these, Volume 1 and Volume 2, excellent introduction. What I don't like about them is I usually say to people when it comes to the fathers, don't read secondary sources. Don't read sources about the fathers. Read the fathers. Read the primary sources. But he did a really good job here, actually, for secondary sources of basically, you know, who they are, where they're from, what their emphasis was. Easy read, a couple pages on each father. Um, really good. So The Fathers, Volume 1 and 2 by Pope Benedict. Um, if you want, next time I'm over there, I'll have him sign your copies. If you want, just let me know. He consults me from time to time. Uh, yeah. And insults me from time to time. <laughs> but um, Excellent scholar, by the way. I think Pope Benedict is an excellent scholar. Um, oh, I was going to read to you from Claire Russell. I have no idea if it's a male or a female, but it's kind of irrelevant. Claire with an E, does that mean anything? Okay. Does one have... No, I'm sorry. <laughs> um Under the authority of the fathers, I thought this was well written. Does one have to agree with everything that a father of the church says? Very good question. 
Are the fathers infallible in and of themselves? I'm going to give you my answer, and then I'll go on to read Claire's answer, because it's essentially the same. No. The church has never regarded any father, including Gregory of Nyssa, to be infallible. They are not they do not have the authority of the Holy Scripture. Okay? However, um, they are authoritative in many ways. They give us insight into the early church, into its ecclesiology, its sacramental theology, its order of ministry, its faith, its liturgy and worship, okay? uh, its zeal for evangelism. But in particular, where the fathers are authoritative, though subject to Holy Scripture, is where they speak with one mind. I think the word is pleroma. Yeah, okay. Meaning the the mind of the fathers, where they speak with one mind, one voice, one heart on, on something. So you can never point to something and say, look, Gregory of Nyssa said this, therefore you have to accept it as if, you know, John the Apostle said it. Okay, um, although he does actually, I don't know what it is in Greek, but he holds a title um, by some in the early church, meaning the father closest to being without error. And I, of course, agree with that. So, um, but anyway, um, um, the fathers are not authoritative, but where they speak collectively, they they are. Uh, authoritative, and uh, he or she gets into that. Does one have to agree with everything that a father of the church says? The witness of any one father is occasionally of great weight for doctrine when taken singly. If he is teaching a subject on which he is recognized by the church as an especial authority. Examples are St. Augustine on the Blessed Trinity and St. Athanasius on the divinity of the Son. Because, but it's only because those writings have been accepted by the church East and West as rightly articulating the faith. So it really goes back to that idea of the mind of the fathers. But the authority of any single father in and of itself is not infallible. However, piety and sound reason agree that the theological opinions of such individuals should not be treated lightly. And this, unfortunately, I believe that many, even in the Orthodox movement of Anglicanism in North America and in other parts of the world, they take the fathers too lightly. They'll give them lip service, but they know very little about what the fathers have actually written or said. And I think that's a shame because the early English reformers, whether higher church or lower church, were grounded not only in scripture, but in the faith and writings of the fathers. Cramner is filled with with writings of the fathers. Um, And should not without great caution be interpreted in a sense which clashes with the common doctrine of the other fathers, the received mind. For they were holy men who are not to be presumed to have intended to swerve from the doctrine of the church, and their doubtful utterances are to be taken in the best sense of which they are capable. So I thought that was good. Um, And uh, he or she goes on to distinguish all the different types of the fathers. So this is worth reading the introduction on as well. Glimpses of the church fathers. Glimpses of the church fathers. I mean, I, I think a lot in our... Or Orthodox Anglican movement would think I'm nuts. 
But if I had my way, I would say for the next 70 years, <laughs> the next 70 years, the only thing our movement should be doing besides uh, worshiping the Lord in the historic Anglican tradition and evangelizing by doing church planting, the only thing we should be doing is studying the scriptures and the fathers so that it becomes the norm in our thinking as Anglicans again. Um, I think people say, oh, although that's you. We'll be back where we were. I'm telling you, we'll be back where we were. Um, So, all right, the early church, and then we'll be done. Uh, Ecclesiology. I hope Lieutenant Jeff Hunt is still with us. (laughs) Hanging on. Um, In the early church, as you know from things we've already said, um, when they would evangelize, they would go into the city because the Roman Empire was built on the ruins of the Greek Empire, which was built upon city-states. The idea was that the city was the center of everything and that it influenced the area or region around it, the, the countryside, the villages, okay? Um, and so when they would evangelize, they'd go into the great cities to evangelize and then the gospel would spread out from the city to the surrounding region. A governor, a Roman governor, sat in the city and oversaw a great region around that city known as a diocese, okay? And so the church picked this up. Paul went from city to city. You don't hear Paul saying, well, I was out with the, the, the country bumpkins the other day up on the hill. And, you know, they went from city to city proclaiming the gospel from city to city. And then from the centers of the city, the gospel would would spread. As the apostles went out, they were really missionary bishops, not diocesan bishops, though they would sometimes stay in a city for a period of time. They were really missionary bishops uh, in that sense. They would establish and ordain, we're told by Clement and Ignatius and others, they would establish the church in the city and they would ordain bishops and priests to succeed them. Okay, Clement said this, that the apostles gave us so that when they were dead, this could go on, the office could go on. Okay, um, And so the, the church family, later known as the diocese, was really a bishop surrounded by his uh, uh, assistants, for a lack of a better word, which were the presbyters, later known as priests, and deacons. And people would come into the city to be with their pastor, their, their chief priest, who was the bishop, for teaching, preaching, baptism, catechism, etc., And so the church was the church throughout the world locally manifested in the bishop. And a person knew that they were in communion with the church founded by Christ and the apostles because they were in communion with their bishops who were in communion with all bishops who were ordained by the apostles who received the breath and power of the Spirit from the risen Christ. Is everyone with me? Okay, And so a church was the bishop surrounded by his priests and deacons. 
Okay. And the bishop was considered to be the chief priest, pastor, teacher in that church. He would baptize. He would celebrate the Eucharist. Uh, he would teach, etc., etc. Always said grace at coffee hour. Okay. Um, as the church began to grow, and as it became, in certain times, too dangerous for people to travel uh, into the inner city for worship because of persecution, the bishop, so let's say that um, uh, I'm, I'm the bishop and these three men and these two men here are my, my priests and then I have some deacons here. What I started doing was saying, okay, look, uh, because the church is growing so much, and because it's too dangerous for some to come, I'm going to ordain this priest, Presbyter Praveen, and send him out in my name to one of the nearby villages to establish a house church there. Okay? And Praveen will act in my name as the bishop. Okay? So Praveen would be the vicar of the bishop in that village. So Praveen represented locally the bishop. The congregation that gathered there was a local manifestation of the church family that's gathered with the bishop. And later on in church history, the local church building became the local manifestation of the bishop's cathedral. Now that would be later in church history. Okay, So the local church wasn't considered an entity in and of itself per se. It was the local manifestation of the bishop's church. This is why when this first started happening, um, a deacon would take a piece of the host consecrated by the bishop and bring it to one of the local churches. So that Praveen in consecrating, because people were worried, hey, it's not our bishop who's presiding here. And so that became symbolic that, look, what we are doing here today is in communion with our bishop. And with our bishop, we are in communion with all bishops, going back to Christ and the apostles. And so then the peace of the host would be put into the chalice. Now, we symbolically do that every uh, week or every day. When I break off a little piece of the host, I say a prayer for our bishop and place it into the chalice. What I am doing symbolically, because it's not really from a mass that he did that morning, and, you know, Deacon Susie riding from Newfoundland trying to get here. It's really tough when we have 7.30 a.m. mass. She's a, you know, go, go. Um, uh, and so what I'm saying is, look, people, you don't know I'm saying this, but this is what I'm saying. I'm saying, look, people, what we are doing here at Holy Trinity is in communion with our bishop. And through our bishop is in communion with all bishops, going back to Christ and the apostles from, and forward, too, from the apostolic age until the second coming of Jesus. So what we're doing is not what Holy Trinity does. It is the church at worship. Okay? So the smallest unit of the church is not the local congregation. It's the diocese. Okay? Um, and so one is in communion with their bishop and through the bishop with the whole church. That's why there's no such thing as an independent Anglican church. That's an oxymoron. Okay? 
to say that, um, an independent. And it's not us here at Holy Trinity and them at the diocese. We are the diocese in Marlboro, Massachusetts. And because the bishop is really your chief priest and pastor, when he's here, who preaches? Who presides at the Eucharist? He does. And I have no authority. You know, I always joke that the reason we have fancy copes that the rector puts on when the bishop is there is so that he feels a little important that day. Because really, except for his own need to hear the word of God and receive the Eucharist, he's really free to go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> okay? Because he only acts in the bishop's stead. Okay? He acts in place of the bishop because the bishop can't be in his churches every Sunday. That's why we never welcome the bishop here as a guest, because it is his church. So the smallest unit of the church is the diocese. So you have the Catholic church made up of many dioceses. It's not uh, many parishes coming together to form a diocese and many dioceses coming together, together to form the Catholic church. You have the Catholic church made up of many dioceses and the parishes are the local manifestation of the diocese in that area. And that's why also, almost done, we have the six candles here, and when the bishop comes, uh, we put them out and we put one more on the altar. And the number six in, in, in Jewish numerology means incomplete. So when the bishop comes, we put out a seventh candle, which means that the completion, the fullness of the church is present now with the bishop being here. And so the idea was people were supposed to come into church and go, because remember, they didn't have HTAC news because they didn't have printers. They'd come in and go, oh, the bishop's here today. Look, the bishop's candle's here. So the fullness of the church was when the community gathered with their bishop and the bishop would be surrounded by his priests and his deacons. Okay, Bob? Again, the order of the church then is diocese with bishops over those dioceses. And the Pope right. was merely the, the bishop of Rome. Rome. That's it. That's right. And, uh, and in the early church, he would have held an honorary authority outside of his diocese, but it was an honorary pastoral authority, not actual jurisdiction. I, I suppose we should know this. What's our diocese? What's the name of it? The, the diocese is the uh, Diocese of the Anglican Network in Canada, parentheses, and New England. It's the largest geographic diocese in, um, of, uh, of the ACNA, but probably of the Anglican world. Because it goes from uh, uh, Vancouver Island in the west to St. John's, Newfoundland, to... Uh, the sound uh, at the bottom of Connecticut. So what's the diocese that would be, let's say, California or I don't know what the name of the diocese is. out. The ACNA diocese out there? Right. Uh, I don't know. Many, how many are there in the ACNA? No, there's many, and... Um, and, and many overlap as well, um, because dioceses are both geographic and by affinity as well. So like in New England, for example, there's, there's the Canaan Diocese, there's the Amiya Diocese, there's the 
Reformed Episcopal Church diocese. These are all AC. Well, me as a, that's to be worked out, but uh, they're all ACNA. The Reformed Episcopal Church diocese. There's Bishop Bill Murdoch's diocese, which is the largest, and then there's our diocese, and there's also a group of Kenyans. Not not. Not these people, um, uh, who are are a diocese as as well, and so they are some that are overlapping, which is a bit confusing for people. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, go ahead. Yeah, you can't be a diocese really without a bishop. I mean, a diocese would form um, according to the canons of our church the province, the Anglican Church in North America, which is our province, you, to apply for diocesan status, you would have to have, I, I think it's a minimum number of churches, like 12, let's say, 12 churches minimum, with um, a thousand uh, person ASA, average Sunday attendance, between those 12 churches. Um, and then you can apply to be uh, a diocese. Uh, of your own. You can have less than that and apply for, I'm trying to think of the term, but basically uh, it's we want to be a diocese when we grow up. <laughs> and a diocese in formation is the term. Diocese in formation. And a, a bishop from another diocese would oversee your area. Um, but uh, you would be a diocese in formation, but you have five years to basically meet the minimum requirement to become a diocese or you, you know, forfeit that application. Um, uh, and then uh, it has to be accepted by the House of Bishops, you know, for it to be a diocese. Go ahead. No, synod uh, it can mean that, but a, a synod is is a um, usually it's a local council of the church. So it's it's not uh, um, a council of much larger thing. It's a, a synod that where they pray for the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. And typically for us, it has representatives of the bishop and and the diocesan bishop, uh, or if it's a provincial synod, the the archbishop would preside over it. Uh, but there would be bishops, uh, other clergy, priests and deacons, and then lay representatives as well. So like we, tomorrow we will elect lay representatives to go from our parish to represent um, our parish at the diocesan synod in November. But all the clergy can go and could, you know, as part of the diocese as well. In fact, a priest is really not a priest of the parish. A priest is a what? Diocesan priest. A priest is a diocesan priest. Um, And he serves, besides the Lord in the Bible, yes, we know that, but he serves the bishop and represents the bishop in the local part of the diocese known as a parish. Um, Who hires a priest? priest is not hired. A priest is called. The uh, call is, a, is uh, sent by the uh, uh, vestry or parish council to the bishop who then has to appoint and license the priest. 
but no one hi- a priest is not hired. He's called. Uh, can a vestry, once the priest is appointed and licensed by the bishop and that call by the vestry is affirmed, can the priest be fired by the church? Nope. Cannot be. Uh, you can do things like as a vestry, say, um, when your contract's done, uh, we're going to vote not to pay you. That might get rid of the priest, um, but you can't actually fire because you haven't hired the priest. The priest actually doesn't work for the parish, it works for the diocese. Um, in exchange for the local congregation um, basically you know, coming up with the money for the priest, most of his ministry is in that area. But his ministry, we get this in vestries a lot. Oh, well, but you're, you're, you know, you're with the fire department or you did this for the diocese or you're being sent here to do that. But you're, you're a diocesan priest and most of your ministry is there. But you're, you know, if your bishop sends you to do X for a time, that's what you, you do. And that's the mentality, especially in New England, that you don't hear, it's not swallowed very easily because it's very congregationalist. You know, I would bet to say that most people um, in this parish would, would say that, um, you know, he works for, for us. Yeah, he has authority. They know that I have authority in the church, but they would probably say he works for us. We've, we hired uh, Father Michael and he's our priest and we'll let him do so much with the diocese. But we are the diocese in Marlboro, and I work for the bishop. I don't work for the parish. I work for the bishop. But everyone has a say. What's interesting is that I, I use this example with the staff today. Let's say that these three guys were ordained. God save the church. But let's say that they were ordained. And, um, uh, and all of them came to me. Hey, Mike, bud. Uh, we all want to. We all want to work for your church because it's like the coolest church ever. And uh, and so I said, Ah, great! I have the authority, and I don't need the approval of the vestry or parish council. Um, I can actually call all three of them as my assisting priests, my curates. Where does the bishop get a say? The bishop has to license them. Where does the vestry get a say? They're not going to make any money unless the vestry approves their contracts. So, so that's what. So, at that level, everyone kind of has. It's kind of a checks and balance system. But actually, it's the bishop who appoints and license the uh, the person. And, and ordains. And ordains, right? The congregation cannot ordain. A priest cannot ordain. This was a big dispute between Charles and John Wesley, actually, in the, in the Wesleyan movement, which became known as the Methodist movement, because the, the Church of England was not supporting the movement, and it was a movement that was necessary, by the way. I think if I lived in that time, I would have been a Methodist, um, but I would have been with Charles on this issue. John finally said, look, um, we're not getting the support of the bishops for this movement to continue. We need priests. So in this emergency situation, we as presbyters, because in the very early church, priests and bishops were kind of interchangeable, we actually will have to, in an emergency state, ordain some priests to lead this movement in the United States. Um, To which Charles said, no, while that is true, that uh, they were somewhat interchangeable, 
on, based on the Holy Scripture in the apostolic church with the death of the apostles, there's a clear distinction between bishops and priests, and bishops can ordain and priests cannot. And where that was done for a small time in certain locales in the church, it was never received by the whole church as being legitimate and actually was rejected. So you can lay your hands on anyone you want, John. It's not going to happen. Uh, and they actually disagreed on that, and John went ahead and ordained, and it led to the schism that became the Methodist Church. So uh, actually, John and Charles Wesley were priests serving in the Church of England. And Charles said, can't do it. John said, watch me. But their churches were never called churches. They were called chapels. Yeah. That, that could be. Um, everything I really know about it, I just told you. Um, it's not my area. Um, however, I tell you, there is very little, when I read uh, John Wesley, there is very little I disagree with him. Uh, if he only lived several centuries earlier, he might be up there in my book with uh, Gregory of Nyssa. But uh, uh, I really don't like anyone after 1054. But... Um, uh, uh, but I really like the writings of the Wesley brothers, actually. They were righteous, but not the righteous brothers. Is there a council of bishops that meets regularly mm-hmm. from the 1800s? Mm-hmm. And they meet together like, often? No, more than that. Um, the House of Bishops, I think, meets at least once a year, maybe twice a year, but at least once a year. Too many? No, I, uh, I, oh, I'm being recorded. Uh, uh, oh, well, it was nice knowing you. Um, uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Like in our diocese, for example, there's, how many diocesan bishops can there be? One. A diocesan bishop is elected usually by the synod of the diocese. Uh, and then that uh, election has to be affirmed by the House of Bishops, and then he has to be ordained by at least three bishops for it to be canonically uh, regular. Um, and you can only have one diocesan bishop. There's only one bishop of any diocese, okay? And you're in communion with him and through him with the whole church in every age of the church. Um, then you have what's called bishop suffragans, Bishop suffragans are not diocesan bishops because you can only have one diocesan bishop. Bishop suffragans are usually elected by the synod and again affirmed by the house of bishops within that province. And they, are, um, they do not have right of succession to the diocesan bishop. So if he dies or retires or moves on or loses his mind or whatever, they don't automatically become diocesan bishop. And they basically assist the diocesan bishop in his diocese. Um, and they act in his stead when they come to the local church. And, the, and then the rector gets bumped then because then the bishop suffragan is acting in, in the place of the diocesan bishop. Um, we have in our diocese uh, three suffragan bishops, uh, bishop suffragans. Um, then you have what's called a bishop coadjutor. A bishop coadjutor is elected by the synod generally. 
uh, affirmed by the House of Bishops of the province and has right of succession to the diocesan bishop when he retires or resigns or dies. Um, so the, the joke is that a, a bishop suffragan comes into the office in the morning and says to the diocesan bishop, uh, good morning, bishop. Hope you slept well. Uh, a bishop uh, coadjutor comes in and says, how are you feeling today, bishop? Because uh, uh, he has right of succession, um, but is not the diocesan bishop until the other retires, resigns, dies, what, what have you. Um, then you have assisting bishops, not assistant bishops, because all bishops are full bishops. You have assisting bishops uh, who are usually not elected in the diocese, were elected in some other diocese and have retired or resigned or what have you and are in that area and want to help out. And so they're licensed by the diocesan bishop to help. So you have diocesan bishops, uh, bishop coadjutor, which is a bishop elected uh, with right of succession, bishop suffragans, which are bishops elected by the synod but n without right of succession, and they are not diocesan bishops, um, and then assisting bishops, which are bishops uh, licensed by the bishop of a diocese to help out in that diocese. And they're, con they're all considered prelates, and then minor prelates are the archdeacons. They have the authority of a bishop in a particular area, but unlike all these other bishops, they cannot um, ordain or anything like that. I told the bishop jokingly, because he always calls us when we gather as archdeacons, uh, minor prelates. So I, I told him I was going to change my uh, email address to minor prelate. And he said, you do, and that will be the last day that you're a minor prelate. <laughs> so anyway. Yeah, yeah, promoted by being stripped of it. <laughs> then I can go and... Now, now, you said that the diocesan bishop is ordained by three other bishops. Yeah, all bishops are, yeah. Isn't he already ordained when, when he became a bishop? Well, no, well, this is if he's being made a bishop. Yeah. If he's already a bishop when he's elected to be diocesan then let's say he was a bishop suffragan somewhere. He's not ordained again. He's simply installed as the diocesan bishop. You're, um, you're, you're only ordained a bishop once. Yeah. Which is a big question for the Church of Rome. When a bishop, because it's usually a bishop that is elected pope, when a bishop, uh, who is a cardinal, which is an honorary title, but a bishop is uh, elected the pope and is installed as pope because there's no ordination, because you're only ordained deacon, priest, or, or uh, deacon, priest, or bishop. So archbishop is an honorary title. Patriarch is an honorary title. Pope is an honorary title. When you're installed, since it's the sacrament that infuses the grace and no sacrament is taking place, you're simply installed as the bishop of Rome, where do these extra charisms come from, like to speak infallibly on issues of, of faith and morality? Where do they come from? Because you're not ordained Pope. You're not ordained Pope. Bob, I'm sorry, Praveen. That's my understanding that there were Popes years ago that were not bishops. In fact, they 
I don't know. I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I don't think that that's necessarily true, but it's true that they that cardinals were not always bishops. Cardinal, you could be a lay cardinal. I don't think there's any in the world right now. Um, uh, um, there's a few in St. Louis. Uh, they're all lay cardinals. But anyway... Uh, it only encourages me, yes. Uh, um, I, I was explaining to Bob at breakfast that the ultimate compliment for a comedian is laughter. The, um, in booing is the worst thing that you can get is an audience heckling you. When you're a punster, which is different than a comedian, the ultimate compliment is, is being heckled or booed or people rolling their eyes. Actually, people laughing is... is, is Quite offensive, actually. So, um, uh, so we laugh. yeah, that's right. The more you laugh, the less I'm likely to do it. Uh, um, so that I know, but whether or not they were lay popes, that would be hard since the pope is the bishop of Rome. Sicola, Pope Sicola. Okay. Right, but then they would. Oh, that that that's right. You'd have to be then ordained. There have been times in history. I, 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 you know, I, it's worked out a couple of times in history, but I actually think it's contrary to the scriptures where it says lay hands on no man suddenly um, and that people shouldn't be babes in the faith. But Ambrose, for example, who turned out to be one of the great fathers of the church and a great bishop of the church who was bishop of Milan, um, was actually elected by the people and he was baptized one day and then made, dick, dick, made deacon, uh, deacon, priest, and bishop all the next day. Oh, okay. And then made him. Yeah, well, Beckett was, was a deacon in the church, though in the movie he says he forgot that. But uh, he was made priest and uh, bishop and installed as Archbishop of Canterbury all in one day. Yeah. Uh, anyone else? So the smallest unit of the church is the diocese. We are the diocese in Marlborough. It's not us and those people up there at the diocese. Uh, we are the diocese. When the bishop is here, the reason he presides and preaches is because he is your chief priest and pastor. And that's why they put the candle out when he's here and they take it away when he's not. No one puts out a candle for me, uh, you know, but because he's the bishop, I'm not. Um, and, uh, and, you know, the priest actually works for the bishop. He is a priest of the diocese, not a priest of the parish. Speaking of where does the Pope get his extra authority kind of stuff, 
Isn't that the whole reason that after the election of a cardinal of Tupon, he goes into the Room of Tears and sheds his old vestments and takes on the vestments of the Pope, the white vestments, as opposed to the cardinal's vestments? Maybe, because the cardinals are red, you mean? And he puts on the white? I don't know. But still we can give you a charism. I mean, charism has to be bestowed through the sacraments of the church, and there's no sacrament in becoming Pope. So it's a... It'd be interesting to ask, you know, I actually find, I mean, this sounds silly, but I actually find uh, Joseph Radzinger, who's uh, a.k.a. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI, to be such a man, uh, a scholarly man in intelligence, that I would like to sit down and ask him, because he's not going to give me the opportunity. i like, come on, man. Yeah, oh, well, that'd be disrespectful, but come on, Pope. <laughs> you've got you to gotta know that the filioque is like, a no-no, you know? And I want to hear his answer because he's such a, a scholarly person, you know, and, um, and has such a love for the patristic church that I don't know why he's not Orthodox Anglican or Eastern Orthodox. You, you know, and wouldn't that be cool if he announced that out of conscience he had to join the ACNA? <laughs> <laughs> well, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be great if he said ex cathedra that all... Roman Catholics. Had to be, yeah, join the ACNA. I think we will end there, and uh, God bless you, and uh, thank you for taking the class. I hope that um, what was breathed into you was a um, an understanding of just how important the fathers are, and within the fathers, the apostolic age upon which all those other great ages were built. Um, and uh, also to know that the sacramental theology of the church the worship uh, life of the church, the orders of ministry in the church, the faith of the church, the gospel, the scriptures, etc., etc., all have their foundation in the apostolic age. And, uh, it, you know, and, and certainly we're solidified within the first five centuries. So.